Hello and welcome to this special episode of Sixth Queen. We're jumping on the bandwagon of everybody else, um, having a chat about the coronation of King Charles III, which still sounds strange. Queen that does sound really weird. It does, doesn't it? I, I keep trying... <laughs> stresses me out. Who's that? <laughs> um, and Queen Camilla. I woke up early. I was one of those people who watched it uh, stateside at 5am. It's definitely something that the majority of us had never experienced before. And for people like us who have only really ever experienced it through studying the history of it, particularly like the medieval and early modern ceremonies, I think it was a chance to see all of those things that we know so well from reading about them. Kind of see it all come to life because you can imagine it. And then you're like, oh, that's that part and that's that part and that's how that looks. That being said, I have to admit, and I think we're on the same page here. In fact, I know because we were texting during the ceremony. I wasn't as completely mystified by it as I assumed that I would be. Maybe it's just to do with the fact that the modern monarchy doesn't have as much power, both real and symbolically, or what? It's interesting. I think I I was definitely captivated by it from you know an intellectual standpoint i think it was quite hard here not to get swept up into a coronation further whether that was just you know because you got an extra got a bank holiday or a public holiday or um you know because you were doing things or going to a i i I went to coronation barbecue but then like you said when you take a step back i don't know about you but for me we don't have that same emotional attachment to them as we do to our six queens i guess it's a good point I definitely do not have any emotional attachment to the modern day royal family. But I guess I was just imagining that there would be this moment where, you know, he right after the crowning, when he'd be sitting on the chair with the scepters and with the crown on and everything. And I would be like, wow, like what that that's it. That's the picture. And even now I look at all the pictures going around social media and all the recaps and everything. And I'm just like, that's a man on a chair. Like, I don't know. I just don't have the same kind of feeling about it that I thought I would. And the ceremony itself, I guess, maybe because it was so early in the morning for me, too. I don't know. It was happening at like 6.30 for me. It it went by so fast. It's a lot to take in at 6.30 in the morning. I was surprisingly awake, I will say, <laughs> but that might have contributed. Yeah. I think when you traditionally think about a coronation, it is that signaling of a new element of it, a new era coming in, you know, I hate to say it, a younger generation coming in. The coronation that happened in 1953, Queen Elizabeth II at the time was 25. Flash forward 70 years, you've got her son, which is, you know, still interesting coming to the throne in his 70s. There's, there seems to be a mismatch in expectations, I suppose, and what you expect a coronation to be. And I think that maybe potentially dampened the mood not dampened the mood a little bit but it was a bit jarring I suppose but doesn't quite fit with what you expect coronation to be in that that new kind of rebirth and regeneration of a monarchy like you've been saying I think our big problem is that we are so well acquainted with how it would have looked for all of our monarchs and queens in the 16th century that I think we are a little bit let down just because we know the height of what it could be and not to say that we wanted that in the 21st century because that would be utterly ridiculous but I think we had this image in our mind and then it didn't get there and we were disappointed even if we understood 
So with that in mind, I think that's kind of what we want to do with this episode is not necessarily comment on specific aspects of Saturday's ceremony, especially nothing to do with any of the family drama. We all we see it on social media. We all know you have opinions, but we don't care. We are here to talk about people who have been dead for 500 years and what they would have seen and gone through in the same ceremony. So specifically, we're going to be talking about the coronation of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon in June 1509, which is the same exact ceremony that Charles and Camilla went through this weekend. Just they went through like you know, the watered down version of it. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. I can't remember who said it, but the, there's this, this quote that is coronations were the highlight of any reign, because it's always that start point that is you know, the highlight and setting the tone for the rest of that reign. Yeah, because arguably it's the kingliest or queenliest moment that you're going to get in your reign, right? The monarchs of the medieval and early modern period don't wear their crowns that often. So this is a chance to wear your crown in the full regalia. You are undergoing a very religious and ceremonial role it's a chance to be seen by the people of London. So you're going through all these processions. And this is where they make me really excited because it is the height, one might say, of the demonstration of monarchical power and the potential of monarchical power. So I propose that we walk everyone through the two days of celebrations for Henry and Catherine. And along the way, we'll make some callbacks to what we saw on Saturday. We'll make some commentary, but we're really going to go off of um, a couple of primary sources that illustrate just how amazing this day must have looked, starting with June 23rd, 1509, which was when Henry and Catherine processed from the Tower of London to Westminster Palace. I know I know. we've spoken about um, the Tower of London and its kind of focal point. We spoke about it in, in relation to Anne Boleyn, about it being the height of her greatest triumph and then her, her lowest low at her execution. So it, it holds a lot of significance for coronations. And I think that is a whole episode in and of itself. So we're not going to go into too much detail, but everybody sort of knew where the start point was going to be because that hadn't really changed. Yeah, it was a medieval tradition that I'm actually not sure where it started, which is bad considering we did all this research for this episode. But it's a medieval tradition that then carried through that the monarch spent the night in the Tower of London to show that they were in their seat of power um, because London is the, the largest city in their kingdom. So we're here, we're claiming this. And then from the tower they would then process to Westminster, which is where all the main festivities were. So one of the big highlights of medieval and especially early modern coronations, like if the Tudors really leaned into it, is the procession from the tower to Westminster. 
And it becomes such a hugely politically significant moment because of the entire ceremonies, this is the most public that you're going to get. This is a chance for everybody in London to come along and stand on the on the route and get a glimpse of the king and queen. However, it was a, a lot bigger than what we saw on Saturday. In uh, Henry and Catherine's case, you would have been greeted by all of the officials of the city of London. There would have been people lining the route who have been plied with alcohol because one of the big draws was that um, fountains ran with free wine and free beverages for everybody. So everyone would have been feeling really great. And dec decor, too. Um, in Henry and Catherine's case, the chronicler Edward Hall writes that all of these storefronts were decorated with tapestries of cloth of gold. So the whole way is just decked out. Whereas now we have, you know, the Union flag flying everywhere and all these banners and bunting and everything. Then it was like literal gold. I feel like I was at a disservice on Saturday. I did not get my fountains of wine, am I? <laughs> you, I know. Instead, you got what was it? Your quiche or whatever. Like, oh. no, I want the I want the fountains of wine. The other amazing thing about these processions is that it's not just a parade; that there are actually some chances for interaction. So, not only you as a citizen of London can yell things like you know "God save the king" or whatever you want, but um, there are these like tableaus these like little plays that are going on at different stages on the route of the procession so part of it is because they want to give a chance for the people in the parade and the horses and everyone to rest because it is quite a long route from the tower to westminster but the other part of it is that it's like a way to show the king and the queen your loyalty and your political ambitions for them. So um, the aldermen of London, for example, might stage a tableau so that Catherine would be like, oh, wow, like they, you know, they really like me and they really want to support me. And these were little chances for you as a commoner to see politics on display. And in a weird way, it's making that the, the, the monarchy accessible. Like you say, it's politics on display and it's politics, you know, in, in, in real time. And making it in a way that everybody can engage with it so it's not just um kind of high politics at this point to not only see the monarch but to be seen by the monarch yeah if you're ever going to get a chance to gauge public opinion about your rule then this is this is kind of it this is the time uh Anne Boleyn for example there are differing accounts of what actually happened when she processed through the streets of London. The official accounts say that everyone loved her. The more critical people, like uh, the Imperial Ambassador Chapuy, said that people were booing her and they were making fun of the um, Henry and Anne's initials, the entwined HAs, and they were going, you know, they were saying, ha, 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 and they were mocking her. So we don't know exactly what's true, but the point is that this was a chance for the public to raise their opinions if they had them at all. Fortunately, Henry was pretty well liked at the beginning of his reign. I mean, granted, we're only a few weeks into his reign here, so people don't know yet. But like you were saying earlier, the coronation is so associated with new beginnings and new life. And Henry is young. He is 18 years old and Catherine is 23 so you have these two young people who represent your the hope for a, a new era and you know a new start for your country people were really taken with that image and they responded really well to it more that i think what we need to kind of bear in mind at this point as well is that people's readiness for that continuation of the same monarchy 
or the same family and have that continuity of stability and like you said the the kind of the welcoming of the, the new youthful people Edward Hall, the chronicler, is kind of notorious for saying very, very, very nice things about Henry. He's very enamored of Henry. So I'm going to leave it to your imagination to about what he writes about how glorious Henry looks on this day as they're processing to Westminster. But I want to focus on what he says about Catherine. So he describes the procession of all of the nobles walking through and these are the people who are walking the route they're stopping to view all these tableaus they're being greeted by the lord mayor of london and all the aldermen and the guildsmen and everybody and henry has like a little entourage that goes first so it's henry riding a horse and then all the people surrounding him interestingly the at the beginning of the procession you have um, a handful of men who have just been knighted they've just been um, inducted into the order of the bath and one of them is thomas boleyn now sir thomas boleyn who will become famous later following the king's little retinue is catherine because she's just as part of this as henry and she is looking very beautiful she's decked out in cloth of gold and edward hall is very taken with her so first he writes that she is quote sitting in her litter borne by two white palfreys the litter covered and richly apparelled so she's not riding a horse like henry is she's in this uh you know this litter but then around her you have all these knights on horseback and then her ladies are either on horseback or riding in quote chariots around her as for what she's wearing he writes that quote her person was apparelled in white satin embroidered her hair hanging down to her back of a very great length beautiful and goodly to behold and on her head a coronet set with many rich and orient stones this is something to to look at this is like we said she's young and she's beautiful and she's inspiring this loyalty in her subjects right off the bat I mean, you can't get a much more glowing report from someone than that, really. Reading something like that, you can't help but get excited. It, it creates a very strong, powerful imagery in, in, in your mind. And she's right there, too. Like, the other thing that st stands out to me here is, like you were talking about earlier, the accessibility. And I know, granted, in the 21st century, there are security issues, and I know that. But I think there is a big difference when the king and queen are behind the wall of a, a coach and even as glorious as the coach is with all it, you know it's gilding and everything they're still behind a window and it's like i've been looking at cell phone pictures of the event all weekend and you have to aim correctly or else there'll be a glare and you won't actually get to see the face of the person even though they're right there whereas catherine is in the open here right and you have this giant parade in front of you and she's there at the center of it she's probably waving and smiling down at everyone with her hair loose it's much more of a lasting image to me than anything that we saw on saturday yeah i think well because then at that point with with you know even with, with Saturday, you're relying on props almost of, of monarchy and trying to emulate that power and prestige. Another interesting comparison, I saw a lot of people kind of bemoan the fact that Saturday for you all in, in England and Southern England was a very rainy day. So I thought it was interesting when I came across a mention of the fact that while in the procession from the Tower to Westminster, the parade of Henry and Catherine was actually interrupted by a brief rain shower. It was very brief, and they just kind of paused for a moment, and they got the queen, king and queen under cover. But there was rain 
on that day, just in case you feel like we missed anything. It wouldn't be a British occasion if there wasn't rain. I think the other interesting thing, too, about the procession is that we talked about this a little bit on our previous episode where we talked about marriages and the the marriage ceremonies of five of our queens who married Henry in these very private and one might say intimate ceremonies that didn't have like public festivals attached to them. The wedding of Henry and Catherine of Aragon was only a week, maybe two, before all of this is happening. And there was so much drama attached to their courtship. I think that it made sense for them to have that private, intimate ceremony together and just have a chance to be together as a new couple. But then this, the procession especially, is the chance for them to show themselves to their new kingdom. And the impression really went well. And I mean, I know we're reading accounts from people who have a reason to kind of flatter Henry, especially, but the other person who was uh, recounting the day was Thomas More, who wrote a poem dedicated to Henry and Catherine uh, commemorating their, their special day. And he is so enamored by Catherine. He actually makes reference to the fact that they're a newlywed couple and how glad England is that he that Henry chose to marry Catherine. One of my favorite quotes was, this lady prince vowed to you for many years through a long time of waiting remained alone for love of you. And now it's like her triumphant moment of like, now the people are seeing me and I am your wife now. And this is we're all where we should be. He kind of just justifies it, you know, it's been worth the wait and it's kind of been worth it's it's been a long time getting here that now now look now look what's happened and it's it's all coming together for you. It just took a bit longer than than anticipated. Yeah. Thomas More was just as excited for this day as as Edward Hall was, because he also writes in this poem if ever there was a day, England, if ever there was a time for you to give thanks to those above, this is that happy day. So the next day, June 24th, 1509, is the day of the actual ceremony for Henry and Catherine. They stay the night after the procession in Westminster Palace, which is where like the Houses of Parliament are today. And then from there, they walk the lengthy walk across the street to go be crowned inside the Abbey. The day was very particularly chosen. They wanted to do it relatively soon. They knew that they wanted to do it in the summer of 1509 after the death of Henry VII. But June 24th is Midsummer Day. And it's a day associated with, again, themes of like rebirth and, you know, picture the world is green and lovely and it's the height of summer. And that's really the kind of messaging that we want to get across here is that Henry and Catherine are England's summer. Symbolism is a really important thing in the Tudor court and in the Tudor period. So it it just, it's not an accident. Lucky for them too that it happened to happen on a Sunday because usually as a, as a ceremony, um, it is a religious service. So they want it to take place on the holiest day of the week, which is Sunday. Another major difference from what happened over the weekend. 
we don't actually know a ton about what specifically happened once Henry and Catherine got inside the Abbey. There's not a ton of documentation about what it would have looked like for them specifically. That being said, they're probably the reason for that is because medieval and early modern coronations, and to some extent everything thereafter, follows a very specific order of ceremonies. These were transcribed eventually in the 14th century during the reign of Richard II, and they're in a book very handily known as Liber Regalis, or the Royal Book. And in this book, they have really, really, really specific instructions about what a royal coronation should look like, and in all versions, you know, so a king being crowned alone, a king and queen being crowned together, a queen consort being crowned by herself. Uh, not a queen being crowned by herself because that hasn't happened yet. But you get the gist. The details, though, are insane. Like, it's not just a order of ceremonies that you might see when you attend an event and you get, like, the little, like, you know, brochure at the beginning, right? The program. This is down to, like, what everyone should be wearing, how high the dais should be in Westminster Abbey, how much shorter the queen's throne should be from the king's like it is insanely detailed and in that way we can see what Catherine and Henry would have been going through because it's just it's so detailed that it leaves nothing to the imagination whatsoever because everything around the monarch has to look intentional e even down to the way that the ceremony is ordered that is a reflection of the order of the country I suppose and kind of what they can expect from that that that, that monarch well, there has to be the continuity too. the uh, the idea that you are the heir of, I don't know, whoever, William the Conqueror, Edward the Confessor, whoever you're into, and you are undergoing a ceremony that looks exactly like the one that they went through. And it's just, it's the tradition. That's where the power comes from. That's Henry would have in designing this coronation for him and his wife stuck to the book. Otherwise, they they would have really wanted to make sure that this looked exactly like everything that came before it, because that's where the legitimacy comes from. We do know one specific thing about the ceremony, and that's what Catherine was wearing. It's a version of what the book says that the king and queen should be wearing. So she, Catherine came to Westminster Abbey. They processed along basically a red carpet between the palace and the door to the abbey. And she was wearing a sort of plain, actually, white kirtle. But then she was wearing this robe, this mantle that was trimmed with fur, with ermine fur. And the train was ridiculously long and it was embroidered with gold thread. So, you know, just like in, during the procession, she would have looked very queenly. And then her hair was down. This was something that was really important symbolically. Women are seen as more pure if their hair is down and queens are just about the only married women who can get away with having their hair worn long on their coronation day because it's seen as they're 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 somehow more holy that way if they're showing all of themselves and Catherine we know from Edward Hall had really beautiful hair that was really long down her back and it was bright red otherwise we now have to pick up from what Liber Regalis tells us happened Liber Regalis has this very kind of cool organization to it that's basically like a user's manual for how to do a coronation. And so we're picking up at the point where the author says, 
Now, if the queen is to be anointed and crowned on the same day as the king, a throne must be likewise prepared for her on the left-hand side of the king's throne, which must be somewhat higher, just in case we weren't sure who's really holding the power here. The queen shall be vested in a tunic and state robe with a long and flowing fringe. The tunic and robe shall be of one color, that is, purple, and of one texture without any other embroidery on it. The queen must be bareheaded and her hair must be decently let down onto her shoulders and so and so on and so forth. Just to give you an idea of how insanely detailed this book is. I think my favorite thing about it is um, who can actually crown a king or a queen because it, it literally details only a bishop can crown a king where a bishop or a priest could crown a queen. Now, this is what would have been the reference point for Saturday's ceremony as well for Charles and Camilla, because this is a coronation in which you are investing full power, well, in Henry's case, full power, and Charles, since full power in quotes, onto one monarch, the king in this case. And then his wife, as an extension of him, is also being crowned and anointed as his consort. So that's why the thrones are of different heights, right? Is that we need to make sure they know that Henry or Charles is the one and then the the wife is kind of the accessory. Catherine, though, I think had a little bit more time to really shine in her ceremony because Camilla's was kind of watered down. She didn't really hit all of the same notes that Libra Regalis spells out in the same way that Catherine did. Catherine would have had a lot more moments for regality. Rather than Camilla's, who, I don't want to make it sound bad, but just sat in her chair. But I think with Catherine of Aragon, like you said, like she definitely had a lot more opportunities to demonstrate you know, the, that regality. With her as well, what we need to maybe factor in is that she herself was a foreign princess coming from a big, big powerful family so I think anything less than giving her that full opportunity to kind of spread her wings would have been noted and would have been not best received definitely so we're giving her the full shebang here we're getting we're getting the whole thing so Libra Regalis tells us that the queen's bit of the ceremony after they come into Westminster Abbey and they they say a lot of prayers and there's a lot of there's a lot of blessing of things after that, the king is anointed and crowned and shown to the people. It's very similar to what we saw on Saturday, just to give you an idea. So the king sits in actually the same chair in St. Edward's chair, is anointed. And then they put the crown on his head and they put the scepter and the rod in his hand and God save the king, etc. Then we pick back up with the queen. So the queen comes up to the high altar with the two bishops aforesaid supporting her. And when she has come to the steps of the high altar, she shall lie down on the carpet and cushions duly prepared as is aforesaid by the king's servants. And the archbishop or bishop that is to consecrate the queen shall say a prayer over her as she lieth on the floor. And then begins the anointing. So this is the holiest part of the ceremony. And we have to stress that this the coronation itself is a religious ceremony. It's not about the pomp and the power that comes sort of secondhand. But the queen is anointed in kind of the same way that the king is, but just in a, a bit of a scaled back version. The book tells us that when this prayer is ended, 
the queen shall arise and kneel, and on her head the holy oil shall be poured in the form of a cross, and then she shall be anointed with the same oil in like manner on the breast in the manner of a cross. And at each anointing, that is, on the head and on the breast, when the circlet which she wore on her head has been laid aside, the bishop shall say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen, blah, blah, blah. So this is the same that we kind of saw with Charles on Saturday, but the queen is now getting it too. The queen is anointed just as the king is. She shares that power. She's an extension of his power. I think that's a crucial bit, that just that last bit you said. She's an extension of his power. This is where it then becomes kind of key for her when she then has children and has heirs because, you know, it's that extension of that royal power kind of flowing through her like literal body. And I think it's why what happens with Catherine later becomes so hard for everybody to take. The difference with Catherine was that she was cast aside so blatantly and so publicly and so it was so humiliating for her, coupled with the fact that she was an anointed queen. She went through this ceremony and suddenly you're saying she's not the queen, she's the Dowager Princess of Wales and all of that. And all these people are like, but no, we we watched her be anointed. It doesn't it doesn't compute. It's suddenly the entire ritual is kind of skewed because you're saying that that was hollow and that didn't matter and it was wrong. That anoint that that holy oil is literally connecting them with God and it is literally giving them the tools that they need to do their job and to do it well. So you're not you're not going to change people's mind very easily when you then turn around back. No, it's all right doesn't matter. And you're not going to tell Catherine that that wasn't real because she was the one who was having to go through this ceremony that, yeah, maybe we think it's a little bit ridiculous now because it's just, you know, you're having oil smeared on you. But for her as a deeply religious person who 100% bought into all of this, she felt the weight of it, of this moment where this is all coming together and God has chosen me and I'm fulfilling my destiny that God has planned for me. Well, because I think it's not, it's not just, you know, an emotion that you're asking them to kind of disregard and that feeling of betrayal or, or whatever. You're literally asking them to go against their conscience and say that you both stood before God and now it doesn't matter. Okay, well, if that doesn't matter, I don't, I don't know what does. With the more, more religious part of the ceremony done, now we head into the showy bit of the ceremony which is the jewels and the regalia so first of all Catherine would have received a coronation ring and this is kind of a wedding ring of sorts henry would have received one too charles received one but didn't put it on which i found very strange he kind of like touched it and said cool and then they took it away but for Catherine and henry they would have had it put on their finger on their right ring finger it was interesting reading um a new book came out last year by nicola tallis which is about the jewels owned by queens of england in the late medieval and then the early modern period and she writes that coronation rings she's found are mostly ruby but that these were actually custom made so catherine would have received a coronation ring that was specifically made for her and that was something that she could hold on to as a personal symbol of the day which i thought was interesting because so much of the other stuff like the crown jewels and everything are borrowed and they're handed down from one queen to another but this was something that she wouldn't have had to get rid of later this was all hers and that's a nice thing about it too because it's a bizarrely intimate 
personal object and you know even having that ring placed on her finger I'd imagine would feel quite personal and private in you know such a on such a big day the ring is a symbol of Catherine's marriage to the country basically uh she would have had a wedding ring from Henry obviously but Henry too wore a ring to show commitment to the country they are bound to the country now and for Catherine I think this must have been a particularly significant moment because unlike Henry she's married into this country this is not her native country so it's just another way for her to show her devotion to her new country I guess not new because she'd been there for so long um you know as as the dowager princess of Wales but she's she's a foreign princess she still has some ties to Spain in you know her um, her the symbols that surround her and the, her interests, her cultural interests, but this is really a symbol of I'm with you guys now. I'm English. I'm the Queen of England. Up next is the big moment, the crowning. Just as we saw on Saturday, this is like kind of the one thing that Camilla did actually get in all of this was that they did put a crown on her head. Although we both were talking about this, it bothered the hell out of us that she kept like adjusting it and trying to fix her hair and everything. Yep. Wrong time. Wrong, no, wrong we, time. We can Sorry. All, we can all see you, honey. But it's okay because the significance of it was that she is being crowned and it's the moment of the crown hits your head and you're like, oh man, this is it. I'm, I'm, it. I'm the queen now. Catherine had a similar moment, although she was not crowned with the same crown. Catherine was probably crowned with a crown known as Queen Edith's crown. Uh, this is something that comes from Nicola Tallis, just based on her own research with specific crowns that are used and found in the crown jewel inventories. But she says that Queen Edith's crown was, quote, silver gilt enriched with garnets, four pearls, sapphires, and some old stones. So probably stones borrowed from other pieces of jewelry. And it's named after Queen Edith of Essex, who was the wife of Edward the Confessor, and interestingly was one of the first and only very old medieval queens to have her own coronation and to be crowned with her husband. Now, the one that Edith would have worn, this was probably a 14th or 15th century creation, but named for her in the way that the monarch's crown is named for uh, St. Edward, the confessor. I know I've already said this today, so I do apologise. But just just in case you missed it, it is that physical representation of of the monarchy and, and everything that it stands for. But I think what is most important as well, for every time that Catherine then puts that on her head, she's reminded of her duty and reminded of the history and the weight that that carries. And, you know, if you're not feeling the weight of it, then you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah, Queen Edith's crown is part of the coronation regalia in the same way that St. Edward's crown is. So the crown that we saw Charles wear on Saturday is the sort of late early modern version of it. Um, a lot of the crown jewels were taken apart after the English Civil War. And so when the restoration happened, King Charles II kind of had to scramble to make new stuff or find old stuff for his coronation. So the one that we saw Charles wearing is that version from the 1660s. The St. Edward's crown that Henry wore probably looked very similar to it, but it wasn't the same. And in the same way, the match for it, the companion of it was Queen Edith's crown, which is what Catherine got. So sitting in not the same coronation chair, but in a different chair, being crowned, she's got the anointing, she's got the crown. Now she's going to get a scepter and a rod. 
see we saw these i think camilla on saturday didn't hold them but she again touched them Catherine would have held hers so the first one that would have been placed in her hand was a gold scepter topped with a dove and this is a symbol of her power um it's a, a symbol of her command as queen because even if she is sharing power with the king and she's lesser than the king she still does have right and might and power but i think the interesting thing is that it's topped with a dove and so is the rod that she gets next which is a symbol of justice because the queen as a woman has a gentler influence than that of the king which is represented by the dove on both items it's another reminder of her position and what she's there to do and it is to to champ like you said to champion justice and to champion you know upholding the law but not to enforce the law yeah that's a great way to put it it's like you're you're there for the um you're there for the soft power like that's really what we see the queen consorts they take on that role of um you know, if like, let's say Henry's in a particularly bad mood, but you really need something to get through, you might go to the queen first and ask her and she might find the way to like kind of slip it in and get it through to the king and kind of soften his outlook on it, maybe while he's in a rage because, you know, there's just so much testosterone he can't. So I think the dove being a symbol of that and it being incorporated into the coronation regalia says so much about what they expected her role to be. So this all being done, you know, now you can like close your eyes and picture Catherine, this 23 year old with long red hair. She's got a crown on. She's been anointed. She's holding these a, a scepter and a rod, these two things. And now she's sitting there beside Henry as the queen. She's going to genuflect to the altar a little bit more. They're going to say a couple more prayers over her to bless her. And then the big moment comes just, just another instance where we're stressing Catherine's sort of lack of power as compared to her husband she'll approach Henry who's sitting on a throne and you know crowned with scepters and she'll bow to him before she takes a seat next to him on that slightly shorter throne so now they're sitting together and you really get the the sort of image of majesty of these two young people with all this crap on them and they're there they're the king and queen of England and that's really the that's the ceremony I think when you see something like Saturday's coronation and you maybe don't have necessarily have that intimate knowledge, I suppose, of what a coronation is and what it what it represents, I suppose, like I say, out of context, it all looks a bit weird and a bit pointless. Do I think it makes complete sense? That is a question for a different day. But the more you know about it, I think the more you can kind of get involved with it and kind of pull it apart a bit more, which made it Saturday so much more fun. I think what we have in our minds as historians is something like Catherine went through, which is just as regal and just as laden with symbolism as Henry's was, but just on a little bit of a more, you know, laid back scale. really the main thing about this episode and what I think we both wanted to get out of it was just to kind of highlight that yes last Saturday there was definitely you know couldn't escape the tradition that happened there and it, it was very um, grand by 21st century standard 
However, when you compare it to a 16th century standard by Catherine and Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, I think they they don't really compare at all. They're not they're not really in the same league. However, what does remain the same, and I think this is the kind of crucial bit, is people the public interest in them and the kind of the spectacle of them because they're they're fascinating. I went into this definitely expecting a ceremony in line with what I've read about historically. And this is something that I've researched a lot. So I was really in my head with like expecting all of these things. And of course, we didn't get that because the monarchy, as you all know it today, is nothing compared to the power that they were bestowing upon Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon in 1509. At that time, they were it. They were the be-all and end-all of of the government, really. Whereas, really, all Charles has now is the spectacle. So I think the moment I was waiting for of that magic, like, oh, wow, look at them, it, it has to do with the amount of power attached to the ceremony. And in Catherine and Henry's case, there was a lot of power attached to the ceremony, whether you know, political or religious, it was there. Whereas I think Charles and Camilla's really was just about the cultural continuity and the tradition and the the, the television show aspect of it, of trying to give you all something to to look at and celebrate. We've seen if you don't, if they don't keep up, they get left behind and bad things can happen. So it makes sense, I think, that it's adapted. But like you said, like that, when we said it at the start, like our our historical expectations are different. I think the coolest thing was seeing all the historical artifacts in action, because so far we had only seen them kind of separately as museum pieces. Like, you know, we've both been to Westminster Abbey to see the chair and the place where the coronation happens and um, in the cathedral itself, the abbey itself, and then the crown jewels and the tower. We've we've seen them all separately and we've kind of imagined what it would look like. But now seeing all these artifacts actually being used as opposed to just sitting in a museum, it's very rare to see historical artifacts continue to have history attached to them. That was really cool. And to me, that was the the thing to get up for. So... Yeah, we're glad that we didn't let this moment pass, that we did something to commemorate it because it is a special moment. Despite what we think of it, it is something that we're going to remember. Otherwise, we will see you probably later in the summer. We are currently planning out series four, uh, which is about motherhood. And those episodes will be coming to you later in the summer. We haven't chosen a date yet, but we will keep you updated. We'll see you then.